Welcome to the School of Travel's podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners. Long time no talk, and let me explain why. Last week, I was intending to upload an episode for you, but the person I interviewed, one of my best traveling friends, Anna Mazurik, actually had issues with Amazon, and so the book that we talk about in the episode that she was promoting didn't end up being released until this week, and I didn't want to release an episode with her talking about her book when you couldn't go and find it from the link that we put on the schooloftravels.com. Anna actually has her master's degree in photojournalism, and she is a longtime traveler like myself, also from the U.S., and she has a really interesting story about what pushed her into travel and how she, how she does her very best to hardly spend any money while traveling. Of course, we all have to buy airline tickets, but Anna finds really creative ways to save money all throughout the process. And so I really hope that you enjoy this episode with her and that you learn a lot. Welcome to episode 10 of the School of Travels podcast, and I am very excited today, listeners, to bring you a conversation with one of my best friends and someone I actually met while traveling, Anna Mazurik. Hi, Anna. Hey, Becky. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for coming in. Well, thank you for letting me into your apartment, actually, to record this interview. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited because I know that this week coming up, you've got a really big thing happening. Would you like to tell the listeners? So I am releasing my very first self-published book. It is called Good With Money, a guide to prioritizing spending, maximizing your savings, and traveling more. So it basically details how I've traveled pretty much nonstop for the last 10 years, um, all on an average income of roughly 30,000 US. So it sounds like a perfect thing for our listeners that, that they'd be interested in. Um, and we will look, we will provide uh, details about where you can buy Anna's book, which comes out it comes out this Tuesday, right? December the 11th, December yes. December the 11th. Okay, so we'll provide links to that. But in relation to that, Anna, I want to ask you about your long history with travel, as you said, <laughs> over 10 years. So where do you think you first became inspired to travel, or what first got you interested in leaving the house, <laughs> getting out there. Well, I grew up on a farm in South Carolina, and I've wanted to travel for about as long as I can remember. My aunt was a big traveler, and she would always bring me back these cool t-shirts and souvenirs, and I think it kind of came from her, and my dad had some friends that traveled, and it's something that I always wanted to do, but growing up, we never traveled. We went to the beach, and we went to Disney World once in fifth grade, so it was nothing huge, and my parents had traveled you know, when they were younger, so they just really had no desire, and they had their own business which was fine, but the minute that I got a chance, I was gone. But I studied abroad in college. My first trip was to the Caribbean. It was to the Bahamas for my high school graduation, so I don't count that. Did you go with your family? No, I went with my, well, my cousins and my best friend from high school. My parents don't go on cruises. <laughs> was it your idea to take that trip? It was, it was. I wanted to do something tropical. It wasn't as far flung as I would like. I sort of learned that I'm really not a cruise person. Well, that type of cruise, anyways, was not for me. I mean, it was fun at the time. It was great, you know, when you're 18. But my first like real proper um, experience was when I was studying abroad. It was my junior year of college, and I studied abroad in England. And the whole the whole story is kind of crazy because I went by myself. I didn't know anyone, and I tried to get all of my friends to go with me, but nobody wanted to go. And as I was applying for the program, two planes flew into the World Trade Center, and the whole September 11th thing happened, and the world sort of changed completely. And I wasn't even sure if I was going to be able to go. I remember talking to my mom about it. And she's like, well, you can't go now. And then the thought of something, because I'd been back and forth about whether to go because I was scared. And the thought of something other than my own like will, you know, keeping me from going, the idea of just not going scared me more than the idea of going. And then I sort of knew that I had to go. And I was talking to my dad once. And, you know, they were, you know, obviously didn't really, I could tell they would rather I stay home and they were worried about me. But my dad said, you know, I was talking with one of my friends and he said he always wanted to study abroad when he was in college and his parents wouldn't let him and he regretted it his whole life. And he's like, you go and you have fun. And so I went and I didn't know anyone and the first day was pretty miserable, but it was one of the best experiences in my life. I studied abroad in this town in Northern England called Middlesbrough and people from England, when I say that, they're like, why would anyone ever go to Middlesbrough? It's a very industrial town, but 
I met some amazing people and I got to travel all around England and Europe. And it sort of led to this crazy life that I currently live. It's sort of where I fell in love with traveling and photography. Can I, ask, can I stop here a minute and ask mm-hmm. you, how did you choose England as the place to study abroad? It's somewhere that, I'd, I don't know, I'd always been fascinated with it. Um, I guess my mother's family way back is British and there's a whole history there. And I always loved King Arthur and things like that. And so just was just fascinated by the ruins and the castles. Because we don't really have a lot of castles in South Carolina. So <laughs> <laughs> things like that for me were, were really exciting. Um, the ruins were definitely the coolest part for me. And in that small town that you said your friends in England... We're wondering, how did you ever even go there? Was that just... It wasn't actually that small of a town. It was just a very industrial town. It's not a place that most tourists go. And it was a place that the program was based in. Essentially what happened is they had a program with my university. I got to pay tuition at my university and go to this thing. It was like a good even exchange. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas other times, like if you were to go to Oxford or something, you'd have to pay a fortune to go. And so I was just paying my, you know, South Carolina tuition because I was at the University of South Carolina. And it was the best deal. And it was the only one they offered in the spring semester because I couldn't go for a full year because I couldn't miss football season because football was a big deal to me back then and still is. So that was the mindset for choosing that and kind of ending up there. For those listeners who might think about doing a study abroad as a way to get into travel, how did you go about the process of getting that program set up? Did you go into an office on the campus? There was actually someone who came to one of my classes my freshman year and talked about it. And they got that got me interested, but the office is there and that's where you would go and they have all the information and all the details and the logistics. But I mean, even the website, all the study abroad programs have websites and you can just go and take a look and go talk to them. They do events on campuses, so it's a very easy thing to do. Um, and you can and it can be very affordable. It was actually cheaper. The accommodation was cheaper in England than it was to pay for my my housing in South Carolina. Did you take out student loans to go on the trip? No, I have no student loans. I have no debt from both undergrad and my graduate degree. I'm sure that was a, that might be a part of your book. It is. There is a whole section about how I went to college and grad school with no debt. And my nephew is 16, so he is going to be applying to colleges soon. So I've made it one of my goals to make sure that he gets out of college with no debt or the least the least amount of debt possible. So all of the research that I've been doing for him, I compiled and put into a section of the book to kind of help other people do the same thing. And it's a lot easier than you think. I will say I teach part-time in a university now. And I was asking about the scholarships that were offered by the School of Journalism. And I was told that most of the people that apply that meet the qualifications got a scholarship because not enough people applied. People just didn't want to do the work. And I think that's the case with a lot of things. It's people, and it's a lot of work to apply, but it's a lot less work than paying back a student loan, I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, and okay, so you go on this trip to England and you're there for the spring semester, mm-hmm. and then the, your travel spark is lit, let's say, and then what happens after that? So I came back, and I didn't really travel just in the U.S., nothing crazy or abroad again for a while. So I came back, and I graduated the next year. And then I traveled a little bit in the U.S. the next year. And then I went to graduate school, and I got my master's in photojournalism from the University of Missouri. So I did travel around the U.S. a lot then. I went on tour with a band for my master's project and did a documentary. So there was a lot of U.S. travel. That's very cool. Just have to add. And then I, afterwards, I moved to Birmingham, Alabama. I got an internship in a magazine, and I actually lived in Birmingham off and on for five years. It was one of my favorite places, actually. Sort of felt like home more than any place I'd ever lived. But I would actually, when I was living in Birmingham, I was interning, and then I really wanted to live abroad again. And I looked into a visa, and Australia had just made a visa that was... um, Basically, Americans were able to apply for their working holiday visa. It was a new program that Americans were eligible for. And you could go and you could work for a year. You paid a fee, just a few hundred dollars, and you could work anywhere. And so I decided that that was what I was going to do, and I was going to save up money. And when my, my lease ended for my apartment, I was going to go. But when all of this happened, I had been interning in a magazine that was part of Time, Inc. and the, the whole Southern Living family. And it had been amazing. And then when I got finished with my internship... I got hired as a contract photographer for Southern Living. So about two weeks a month, I was freelance, but two weeks a month I was traveling and getting paid to travel and um, photograph, and it was amazing. And then I was working at a newspaper part-time as well. It was super flexible. And then I was also, I'd, when I was interning, I'd gotten a job at a bar, a live music venue, because I was a music photographer for a long time as well. And so it helped, number one, it was extra money because my $10 an hour internship wasn't quite paying the bills. And then it was just, I met so many amazing people and it's sort of, it's one of those things that sort of taught me that uh, 
it funded a lot of my travels, but it sort of taught me the hustle and how to sort of make sure that your income comes from diverse places. And so I was making a good amount of money, more than I'd ever made at that time, and life was great. I was being paid to travel, but I still was just in the U.S., but I still wanted to go abroad. But it was very hard because I was making, life was going well career-wise, so it just seemed silly to leave, but this was in 2008. And come June, all of the contract work that I had with Southern Living disappeared. Um, Timing had some issues, just in general, like the whole crash was starting. The recession was kind of hitting home with everything. And so all of my freelance work sort of disappeared. And this was sort of the time I was planning to go to Australia anyway. So I basically quit all of my jobs and all of my work before they could essentially quit me in some ways. And I applied for the visa. I got it. I booked a flight and I had 10 grand in my bank account. I didn't know a single person. And I got on a plane. I stopped in Fiji for a few days before. And then I moved to Sydney. And um, it was it was probably one of the best and the worst years of my life. It was very difficult. Um, I do want to ask you, yes. how did you find the courage to do something like that? Because maybe someone's listening to this and they're like, how did you go on the other side of the world and not know anybody? Where do you find that courage? Well, I mean, it was just more that, again, it's the thought of not going and just what else was I going to do? Just, I mean, like literally my work was gone. Like I had no, you know... I had really kind of was out of excuses. I already, you know, I'd already finished school. I had more money than I'd ever had saved in my life. It's something I'd wanted to do. And it seemed like, for once, the, like, seemed like the timing actually was right. It's very rare in life that the timing is, like, perfect. But it seemed like that was the best possible thing. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of friends had encouraged me. I'd read a lot of books. Um, I'd read Vagabonding by Ralph Potts. I'd read The 4-Hour Workweek right before this. And a lot of that kind of inspired me. People had sent me documentaries. One I recommend is called A Day Like Saturday, which documents traveling around the world. And it's one of those things that, like, the first day is always scary. But once you kind of get bad, you know, and naivete is also a beautiful thing because you don't really know how bad things are going to be. Um, but it was actually great because what happened was I emailed a lady that I met at a wedding and explain like, hey, I'm moving to Sydney, you know, would you like to get lunch? Because I knew no one. And then she invited me to live with her and her family until I found a place to live. Um, and so I was living with them in this amazing house in the harbor in Sydney for a few weeks while I found a place to live. And then I got a job working at a bar that overlooked the opera house, which is gorgeous. But then I got a job freelancing for the Australian version of Rolling Stone. So my life was pretty random. And so I did that for, I was there just a little less than a year. I did travel all around Australia. I um, got a lot of photo passes to a lot of festivals when I was with Rolling Stone. So I was down in Melbourne. We drove a car down the Great Ocean Road. We went by train from Adelaide to Perth, which is three days. We went to Alice Springs and the Outback and Uluru and Darwin and just all over. Was Australia very expensive at that time? It was, it was, it was the U.S. dollar was higher than the Australian dollar at the time. The dollar did fluctuate a lot then because of everything, but I was earning money in Australian dollars, which helped. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was expensive. They did have some rail passes and things. And when I say we rented a car and drove the Great Ocean Road, we like slept in our car at night. Yeah, there was no, and we stayed in hostels. I mean, I went from living in hotels with Southern Living, you know, to being like a Hilton Diamond member, the Hilton like rewards program to like hostels. And like, I'd sort of had that talk with myself. I knew that I was going back to like being in college again. And, but it's, you also meet more people in hostels as well in those situations. But you know, the, I don't know, the sleeping in our car thing, that was like one of the best road trips I've ever had. And just, it was so hilarious because every, we would just find these towns on the beach and sleep in the parking lot by the beach. And there always seemed to be this like roadside carnival everywhere we went and so like the carny people were sleeping there too in their cars so it wasn't like we were by ourselves I remember one morning we were like I was asleep in the car and I like woke up to some man staring in at me and I woke up and realized that some sort of morning market had appeared in the parking lot behind us (laughs) we were just these random people sleeping in our car we were like we'd snuck into uh, RV parks to shower it was, it was a good, I don't know, I love it. It was one of the best trips because it was just so fun and so random. The reason I ask is also because I know Australia now can be very expensive. It, and I wonder if there are ways to save money for people that, a lot of people in the U.S. I know especially idolize Australia. And think. Well, the rail pass, I assume, I don't know if, what the deal is with it now because it's been several years, but there was a like a rail pass for travelers. And it was, and I did do that and that helped. And then uh, the renting the car, there were three of us and we split it and obviously we sl- I ate a lot of peanut butter. The guys I was traveling with, it was two guys from New York, and they ate cans of baked beans. I ate a lot of peanut butter sandwiches and stuff, but I I couldn't do the baked beans like they did. But there was a lot of that. 
And, you know, and so I cooked a lot. I actually really got more into cooking when I lived there because I just couldn't afford to eat out all the time. So, I mean, you can do it cheap. The hostels, the, when you get out of the cities, it is cheaper. And you can cook in the hostels as well, and that definitely cut back on a lot of it. So, I mean, it's definitely, it's not a cheap place for sure, but you, there are ways you can get around that. So you spent a year in Australia? Yes. And then you went back to the U.S.? Actually, I got a job in Asia running photo programs, um, basically summer student photo programs for high school students. So I left Australia and I went to Southeast Asia. So I was based in Thailand mainly, and I was in Vietnam and Laos, and then I actually ran a trip in India. And so I got, I did that for three or four months. I came back to Australia for about a month to do like the Great Barrier Reef, the Whitsundays, Fraser Island, all of the stuff sort of in the Queensland area. And then I went back to the U.S. I, I know from being friends with you for a while that you have traveled extensively in the U.S. Where is the best place in the U.S. that you've ever traveled to? Or what was your best trip in the U.S.? I Right now, I'm obsessed with like New Mexico and Arizona and Utah and all the hiking that's out there because there's so much that I just didn't realize was there. I did Havasu Falls in May of this year, the hike. And Havasu Falls is a stunning waterfall that's on the, the Havasupai Indian Reservation. It's near the Grand Canyon, and it's very difficult to get a permit. And that hike was just stunning. And then there's all these places in New Mexico, like Chaco Canyon and Bistaya Badlands or Wilderness. It's called Bistaya Wilderness. It, it's probably pronounced differently than that. But there's just like hidden places that are just stunning. And so I'm really enjoying that. I, I've been going to New Mexico a couple times a year to hike, and I've got friends out there. So for me, that's been really cool. I love, I love, I mean, I like New England as well. I, you know, that in like Portland and those places. I love Texas, obviously. I live in Austin, Texas now. So Texas is a lot of fun. For Havasu Falls, you said it was like, difficult to get the permit. What do you need to do? So the permit goes on sale in February every year. And I think it was two, around 200 U.S., first two nights and three days to camp and you have to go it's available online now so you can book online but you can also call but everything sells out usually in about 15 minutes I forgot how many people they let in a day but it's a good you know there's still a good amount of people when you're there but it doesn't feel overly crowded but we were all four of the people in our group we were all online on the phone at the same time you were there I think when I was on the phone trying to um, get through so they actually was able to I opened up a new web browser and was able to get through and book the permits but it's very very difficult we didn't get our first dates we had to go a couple days later but it was one of the coolest hikes I've ever done it wasn't a difficult hike it was just stunning because there's three magnificent waterfalls and they're so pristine and gorgeous they had some bad flooding in the summer last year but and so things are better now but and, and they've reopened everything but I went in May and it was absolutely gorgeous so the permit just lets you hike it it doesn't include a place to sleep. oh it's a campsite it includes a campsite so you, you have to hike it. you have to bring it yeah you hike in with your food there is there's a town that's a couple miles from the falls where you can eat and there's a hotel but though the hotel you have to reserve as well it's also difficult to get but I, you got to hike because the hotel is two miles from the falls. You might as well, because the campground is literally like, I don't know, like a two minute walk. It's like right there around the corner. Um, so I definitely would recommend camping. Okay. So listeners, check that out online. And if you're interested, get the permit in February. Yeah, I did a whole blog post on it um, a few months ago that sort of talks about the details of the hike and how to get the permit. Okay. And we will include that link on our website, listeners. Uh, I have a question for you, Anna. Who is Alfred? Alfred is my little globetrotting gnome. I, so when I, it, was, it started as a joke. When I was in college and I was actually doing my master's project and doing the documentary on the band, I had to drive up to Boston to shoot a show. And I took my best friend from high school, Leanne, and my sister with me. We drove from South Carolina to Boston and Maine and everything and made a big trip out of it. And when I picked up my friend Leanne, she was, there was this like garden gnome on her front porch and it was like covered in spider webs. And I looked at it and I'm like, we're going to take him with us and take photos of him just as a joke. And so we took this little gnome and it was actually like Happy the Dwarf from uh, Sleeping Beard, not, um, Snow White, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> and, and so we had this little spoon of water. So we would always take him out to the beach and I don't know, with the water and did these funny photos. And that sort of started a thing. And I got my own gnome and started taking silly photos. But the gnomes were quite big, so they didn't travel well. And when I was living in Australia, actually in Sydney, I was in a Kmart. And I was just walking, happened to walk through the garden section, and it was love at first sight across the garden section. There was this whole little row of little tiny green gnomes, and he's probably like a foot tall, like not even quite a foot tall. And um, 
So I bought him and then I started doing a Christmas card every year. And so when I was in Sydney, I bought him a Santa hat from the dollar store that was meant to be for a cat. And then I took him out to the opera house and I took a photo of him with the hat in the opera house. And, and that was almost 10 years ago now. And I still, except for this year, because I'm traveling, I make different Christmas cards every year um, with Alfred, as you know, and you've gotten. And so I've made a lot of different cards, but I try to photograph him in very iconic places in the world. It's more of a fun game. I like, you know, it's something that I enjoy. It's something that my friends really enjoy. And I make cards for all my friends. And, you know, and so it becomes like a thing for birthdays or or other holidays, people get different gnome cards. And so it's something that I've done. And he has been to um, six continents with me now. He's a very well-traveled gnome. Have you uh, been tracking how many places you've taken a photo? No, I like, the problem is that I try to find very iconic places where if someone were to look at the photo, they would know where he was. So it's not just a random beach or, or something like that. Um, so like I took a photo of him at Fushimi Anaro in Kyoto. I've got photos of him at the Taj Mahal. Is Fushimi Anaro with all the red? Like yeah, the Tory gates, gates, yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so just things like that that just are iconic to that place. So I try to really focus on that um, so they stand out. So if I can't find a good place or the light's not right, I sometimes will miss out because it's just not worth it or I won't post them if they're not as good. And it, it's really, the light has to be right. Um, and I did take him in Easter Island early this year. I got a photo of him, which is probably one of his best, where he's in line and all the Moai statues are kind of behind him at an angle, which are, you know, like he's almost like the first one in line for the statues. So. That was a lot of fun. You do sell cards with him in different places on Etsy? Yes, I do have an Etsy store where I'll sell like card sets, usually holiday-themed cards. I do have some funny ones. He has a flamingo friend named Santiago, who is a yard flamingo, and I have some funny photos of them, just in general and with the holidays, and also just just funny things. Yeah, that's great for the holidays. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting. It's something I've never thought about doing Mm -hmm. traveling, but yeah, it would make it more fun for you, too. People think I'm crazy, but I don't know. For me, it's worth it. The photos are so hilarious, and I don't know. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's fun. It's really fun. Okay, now, I know the answer to this before I ask you, but um, I'm curious what you're uh-huh. going to say here. Um, have you ever traveled alone? Every, almost 99.9% of my travels have been alone. And, and honestly, I just got sick of waiting on other people to go with me. Is that I just how it started? It, it started with studying abroad because no one wanted to go, and well, I was just like, well, I'm not going to not go. You know, and I just realized that the things that scare you are the things you need to do the most. And you do meet people. And yeah, sometimes it can be lonely, especially at first. But you meet people and it's amazing. And I like so many of my friends, like I wouldn't be talking to you right now if we hadn't, you know, I met you traveling. How did we meet? Do you want to tell her? Do you want me to? You should, you should tell her. So we were, I was in Long Prabang in Laos, which is this amazing town in the mountains in Laos and the Mekong. And I, it's one of my favorite cities. I've been multiple times. And I was up at like 5 a.m. or something to photograph the monks because every morning at sunrise in most Buddhist countries, the monks will come around in the morning and the locals will give alms, which are basically they're giving food as an offering to the monks and they will put it in their food bowls and that's the monks sort of food for the day. And it's this giant procession and people are lined up on the street and it's just absolutely peaceful and amazing. And I was out there and Becky was right beside me on the street and we started talking. I heard your very American voice and I yeah. was like, and then I think what really helped us become friends in a way that you wouldn't just when you meet mm-hmm. someone traveling for a day is that you were still traveling in Asia after that. And I lived in Tokyo at the time. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to you, hey, if you're coming to Tokyo, you can stay in my place for a couple of days. And you did. You came over a the, few months later. Yeah, I'd actually already booked a trip to Japan. And you said you lived in Tokyo. And I was like, oh, no way. I'm going to be there in like a couple months. Yeah. And then I think we were talking about like you asked me where I was going to go in Japan. And I named a bunch of places and I was like yeah I'm gonna go to this small place called Nara because my favorite writer lives there <laughs> who is Pico Iyer who you also love and then I think we talked about that Elizabeth Gilbert article about Long Prabang that was a great article yeah so it would be a lot in common with like different writers and places too it was pretty funny yeah and so I mean so solo travel mm-hmm. I, I was so I was traveling by myself mm-hmm. at that time too mm-hmm. and it really can well, meet so many people, like you said. it does make you more outgoing than you normally are in a lot of ways because you're kind of forced to. And it's a little more natural, too, if other people are by themselves or you're in a hostel or in a place where other travelers are there. It's different than being in, it, than in the U.S. in certain cities trying to make friends at, like, the Target or something weird. You know? and it's such a shame that when you are traveling with especially one other person, mm-hmm. whether it be another, like, just your friend or a couple, yeah. you, you just, nobody, so 
like much fewer people approach you. You're less, yeah, you're definitely less approachable when you're with other people. But when you're by yourself, people kind of look out for you. They come and talk to you and, you know, whether you want them to or not, (laughs) that always happens. Have you ever felt any, like you've been in danger when you're traveling by yourself? I mean, not really. Um, There was definitely a couple sketchy bus rides here and there, but never really by myself. And you just take precautions like you would at home. You're not walking through the ghetto at 4 a.m. with $100 bills taped to your forehead you know, it's just just normal precautions, but nothing where I felt like, you know, there are definitely countries where, unfortunately, being a woman makes you more of a target, and so I just have to be a little more careful, and, you know, in certain places in South America, I make sure that I pay for their private taxis and then safer services, you know, because I'm, I'm, you know, I, you need to invest money for your safety, and I'm not going to, you can't be cheap and risk your safety. I mean, it does cost more money to travel by yourself. For yeah. things like that or when you can't split up? Yes and no. Because that's the thing. You can always find an extra seat somewhere when you're by yourself. And I'm really good at gathering up people. This just happened today. I want to do some day trips in Chiang Mai. And last night we were at happy hour with a bunch of other sort of digital nomad types. And I gathered together four people to do two day trips that we're going to do here around Chiang Mai to some lesser known areas. And I, <laughs> the guy that actually drove me in the taxi from the airport to my current apartment is going to be our driver. And so I sort of put that together. But I use that same sort of method anywhere I travel. If I get off a bus and it's other tourists and we're all going to the city center, I'm like, hey, who's going here? And I'll gather people. I'm always a negotiator. I'm good at that. And so uh, not necessarily. It's like yes and no. And you also, when you're by yourself, you're traveling on your own budget, not somebody else's. Because, you know, certain friends, it's very hard to travel with people, especially your friends. There's very few friends that I will travel with. Becky, you're one of them. Um, Because of this, it's not because of like budgets, but just lots of reasons. But that's the thing, too, is people have some people can't not can't stay in hostels. They can't stand it. They don't like it. Some people don't want to eat at fancy places. Some people want to eat at nothing but, you know, fancy restaurants and things like that. So it's just different tastes and different priorities. And, you know, certain people like museums and certain people like to, you know, go hiking. So I think a lot of it just you you just sort of can do what you want to do. You're in control. You can go eat pancakes every day if you want. Nobody's going to judge you. It's one of those things you're complete control of your own destiny at that point. But you can do it cheap. And it can be tricky in places. I find when you have to take water taxis and boats, that is... I don't know, I had an issue with this in Panama, and, Bo- and was it Bogus del Toro, where it was an issue with, like, it was costing me more to get back. Um, but that was the only place, I mean, for the most part, I was always able to negotiate. And you can get into things a lot easier. You can get a, if a restaurant is crowded and you're by yourself, you've got a seat in, like, five minutes. There's always a spot at the bar or somewhere else. And so I find a lot of times it can be beneficial. I think it's more beneficial than not. I, I feel that the only time this is not true is if, for example, you are traveling by yourself and, let's say, your plane gets canceled at the last minute and mm-hmm. so you end up going the next day instead and you've got to catch a tour and take a private car and this happened to me this sounds them, familiar and then you're paying all out of your own pocket and you're the only one because you've got a very specific exactly and, and that I don't know would travel insurance cover you in that point that's the only thing I would think because that's something that I would definitely try to claim and look into I found out no they won't really uh, but it's you know in some cases maybe some insurances would mm-hmm. but just an example of no no and I think that's also one of those when things just go badly and you're yes. trying to figure things out you really don't have an option and you just have to you know suck it up and deal with those situations if there were, if there were two of you going on that trip then you'd be splitting the cost of that the is car. true that is true the only other thing I've I've found is when you do book a place, a private room, and mm-hmm. you're by yourself, mm-hmm. it's more expensive because you can't split the Exactly, cost exactly. And that's, I, you, I definitely probably stay in nicer places when I'm with other people in, in that type of situation. Although, when you're in places like Chiang Mai, like my current apartment, it's $273 US for the month, and I think it's great. It's nice. I like it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm, and I'm totally cool with, I mean, it's a, it's a pseudo studio, so it's not really meant for like more than one person. Um, but I, I like, I mean, I guess it'd be okay for a couple, but, uh, you know, it's not something you'd want to really be with a friend for <laughs> the whole time. But I like it, and it's nice, and here it, I'm fine with that. But if I were in more expensive places, it would be different, um, I think, as well. But then a lot of times I'd, I'll do, I'm really picky about hostels now, and I try to pick the ones that have the really nice beds with the curtains and all the power plugs, and they're safe, and they look like posh little boutique hotels. I think that's a good tip for listeners. Mm-hmm. Like, if you are looking at reviews online for hostels, um, even if it's your first time staying in a hostel, look for things like that, like individual mm-hmm. PowerPoints by your bed if it says anything about that, or, mm-hmm. or curtains, mm-hmm. or um, just I look at reviews. I'm a big oh, I scavenge I look at reviews. About Ten reviews minimum. 
Oh, I scavenge all the reviews for everything. I probably do it too much. It kind of drives me crazy. Because I just... Well, and know. I don't want to do... And I also don't want to be at a place where they turn the air conditioner off in the middle of the day and I can't come back and just like rest for an hour, you know? And it's like that type of stuff annoys me. Um, when I see that in a review, <laughs> then I'm like, no, I'm not staying there. Yeah, having curtains in that case is really nice too. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just like little things that matter. So... Um, well, you've, you've told me about a lot of different trips so far. And uh, I'm wondering, what has travel taught you about yourself? I think it's made me more outgoing because I think I'm very introverted and shy more than people might think. So I think it's definitely made me in that way. But it's also really opened my mind to the world. Like traveling makes me feel alive and I think in a way that nothing else does. And I think that's why I've always traveled. I've just been fascinated about it's literally travel is the best form of education. So I've learned so much about the history of the world and just all these things that I never would have known, the types of things they just don't teach you in public schools in South Carolina growing up, at least. (laughs) Uh, And so I've learned, and that to me is very fascinating, because I spent five years working in India in the summer, and I got to photograph the Dalai Lama twice and go to two of his teachings, so I know a a lot about Buddhism in India and the Dalai Lama in general and the Tibetan, um, all the stuff that's going on there, basically. And So it's just a lot that you learn about, and to me it's very fascinating. And so I've learned a lot about that. I think the other thing is that it's also, I've also learned that you, you become more open-minded. I also learned that you cannot judge people by their government because a lot of times pe- there are a lot of non-democratic governments involved and people don't have control of what happens. And a lot of times, even if it is a democracy and they can vote, what they vote for doesn't always happen. And that's, I learned that a lot in Burma. I went to Burma right before it sort of opened up and the people were the nicest And you just can't judge them by what, you know, because they were really, it's an interesting place still currently with their their political situation. But at the time then it was, it was strict military regime. And even Cuba, Cuba, the people were amazing. They were so kind and so nice. And I felt so safe in Cuba and the same in Burma. And I think that like, you just can't judge people by their governments, even though the government might, obviously the government's not always treating people fairly, but it doesn't mean the people aren't good people. And I think that's something that it's really taught me is you really can't judge people by that. And I think a lot of the world does that. And I think you really, and that really kind of helped me. Yeah, I think the media tries to... Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. When you go there in person, like you're saying, exactly. you discover mm-hmm. so much. These days, these days, what are you most excited about when you travel to a place? Is it the food or the shopping? Or I, the it's definitely not the shopping because I'm not a shopper. <laughs> For me, it's warm weather. I do not like winter. So I travel to stay warm, which is why I'm in Asia right now. It's also why I moved to Austin, Texas, which has colder winters than you might think. (laughs) But a lot of it to me is it's for photography a lot. A lot of it's to go these gorgeous scenic places and just, I do like the food. I'm in Thailand now just because I love it. I mean, I landed here, the plane landed and I just kind of felt like I was home because I've lived here like for three summers before. And I also taught English here briefly. So it's for home to me. So I think a lot of it's just seeing new things. I love landscapes and scenics and sort of outdoor nature and those types of things with photography. And I feel like I'm focusing more and more on that now than big cities. But then, then there's some places just have this energy. Like um, I was in Buenos Aires earlier this year and it's just got, it's like this Latin European feel and I loved it. And it's just, the food is amazing and it's just a pretty place and it's warm. And I don't know. And I, it's just, it's a lot. It's like the energy in the place and, I do go for scenic stuff. I do go for the photography most of the time. I do like the food, but it's just the experience to meet people and see what it's like. And you know, I'm not culture exactly, culture. exactly. It's just I don't know. Just kind of it makes me feel alive. I go for the challenge, and you know, I get I'm, sitting still is boring. So it's, I've never been good at sitting still. Yeah, and you're definitely a traveler, mm-hmm. you're a born traveler. Um, okay, so let's talk about packing. I think you're an expert <laughs> in this field, uh, listeners. As you know, I always ask about three unique items that my guests pack. What unique items would you tell our listeners to pack, Anna? The first one that I would say would be a headlamp because the headlamp is literally the single greatest invention after the burrito. This is why we're friends. That's what I always tell people. Headlamps are the best because, I mean, we're in a... When you're, I do a lot of hiking and outdoor stuff, and like it's just helpful to have. You don't have to hold a flashlight. I keep my headlamp in my glove box in my car when I'm in the U.S. Because when you're digging around for stuff at night, it's just helpful. And if you're in a hostel, you're trying to be polite. It, it really just is helpful. And so that's a big thing for me. Mine's just a $15 Energizer one from Target, um, but it still is fine. Okay, and what else? I would say proper rain gear, because for the longest time, I was definitely being too cheap, and I just didn't realize how good... There's a difference between 
what are proof and what are resistant. And I didn't realize that for a long time. And I worked in Asia in the rainy season for three summers, and I really learned the difference. And so I have a really good raincoat now of a Marmot coat that's amazing. I have rain covers for all my packs, my backpack, that honestly, when I'm out shooting, I will use that to cover my camera. I have like a plastic sleeve like cover for my camera when it rains, but I find that if it's not a downpour, that the, the backpack cover can be really good to cover the camera. And then also I like to have dry bags as well. Like I like the lightweight ones, not the tight, like the super thin ones. Those are horrible and they rip. And the heavy river bags, unless you're going rafting, they're just bulky. And so that proper rain gear would be the biggest thing because all of that's in my backpack when right now. When you say proper rain gear, so you're saying a raincoat. A good raincoat that's actually waterproof. A rain cover. For I'd say the raincoat needs to have zippers under the arms for ventilation. Um, a rain cover for any backpacks that you have or camera bags, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And then having dry bags for any electronics or valuables if you're going to be anywhere where rain is an issue or hiking or trekking or any type of being on the water. And I also recommend, I always keep, in addition, is a plastic poncho. Just to add on top of all that, if you get stuck in a downpour where, I mean, eventually waterproof stuff, if you're out in the rain long enough, it will drip through. And I just am worried for my gear. And it honestly can keep a good chunk of you dry. So I recommend going to Daiso, which is the Japanese dollar store and literally the greatest place in the world. Mm-hmm. They're all over the world. There's a lot in the U.S. They've been expanding. Yeah. They're in San Francisco. They're in all the big cities in the U.S. There's some outside of Dallas. And by, um, by the way, Daiso is spelled D-A-I-S-O. Mm-hmm. There's one here in Chiang Mai, and I went yesterday, and it was so amazing. There was one in Singapore. I just love it. And they, like, literally, it's a dollar or two for this. The ponchos are, they're good quality. you got to understand that Daiso is good quality everything. Even though it's the dollar store, it is nothing like the Dollar General or the Dollar Tree in the U.S. Got it. Good tip. And my third thing I'd say would be a water filter, because I've just gotten to... It's just so bad for the environment to keep using plastic bottles and disposing of them. And it's also very expensive to be buying water all the time. It just creates a lot of waste. And most of the times you're in places, the places where you can't drink the water are the ones that are really being affected by all of this plastic waste the most. And so to reduce my imprint on that, I always like to travel with a water filter. And the one that I like is the Sawyer Mini water filter, and it's $20 US. It's a small little... I think it's about a 16-ounce bag, and you you basically just squeeze the water through. It looks like a giant syringe, and it filters everything out. The only exception is that it's not good for heavy metals if there's lead in the water or something like that. But I've, I've filtered water in Africa and Cuba and Mexico, and you know I, I've filtered water here in Asia um, as well. So it's something that I've taken with me everywhere, and it's definitely helpful. It's better for the environment. It's cheaper. It's lightweight. All right, definitely great tips. And it sounds like some of these things you've mentioned are also great ways to save money, and that's where I wanted to go to next because mm-hmm. that is what your book is mainly focusing on for travelers. Mm-hmm. So let's go with three again here. What three tips would you give for saving money while traveling or saving up for traveling? I don't know which one you Well, if you're going to save, well, basically while you're traveling would be to have the right bank accounts. This is huge. This is the number one way you can save money. Now, are you speaking for Americans? Yeah, both. I think you can get better. It, it, there, no matter where you live in the world, you can have. There are different bank accounts that are definitely going to be better than others. Okay. If you're an American, you're you're definitely lucky because there's an account called the Charles Schwab um, High Yield Investor Checking Account. It's a free account, no minimums, no nothing, and they do not charge you ATM fees. So if you go to an ATM, ATMs even Argentina charges you ten dollars to take money out, and then your bank's going to charge you as well, and that's expensive. And so Charles Schwab will refund any ATM fee that's charged to you at the end of the month. And I got back $37 last month. And then they don't charge you foreign transaction fees. And that's a 1% to 3% um, fee that's charged by your bank to convert the currency. Now, I think that you can get a Charles Schwab account if you have an American address. I think that's what you... I, I Don't quote me on that. But I was talking to some Canadians the other day, and they have a Scotiabank, and that's a pretty good... Um, you can find a lot of those in the world and that's very helpful. But even if you can't find one of those types of accounts, your bank will have partner banks in other countries. It's a bit more of a hassle to look for those, but it will save you money. And so that's something that you can do, but just trying to have the best account. In credit cards, it's very easy to find credit cards that don't charge you the foreign transaction fees nowadays. Like all Capital One cards do not charge you the fee. Most airline cards are going that way. And a lot of the Chase cards, especially the higher end, like the Sapphire Reserve and the, um, what's the other one? Um, They don't charge you the fee. So I think if you can just make sure, do the research, even 
like credit unions, their ATM fees will be lower. And I don't know if they'll charge you a foreign transaction fee. So that's something to look into as well. And even if you're from you know, anywhere, you're from, I think so. So exactly. Exactly. The goal is to research the banks that are available to you and ask them what are the fees for ATMs and for foreign transaction and what you can do to avoid them. Honestly, there was about three years I was working in Asia, and I had I convinced Bank of America to give me back every ATM fee for all three summers because I was like, listen. I'm here, I'm working. The job that I had, I really had no idea what trip I was leading next, so I didn't know where I was going to go. And there were no partner banks. I really was just in a... And they were nice, and then they got really mean, and I closed my account with them because they charge horrible fees now. But I was able... And you can... If you're just on a short trip here and there, you might be able to call your bank and be like, hey, and just be nice and say, this is the situation. Can you help me out? And and one time I had my... I had my purse still, and, um, and I had to use a card that didn't have good fees, and I... When I got back to the U.S., I'm like, this is what happened. I know this car doesn't have good fees, but I had nothing else to use. And they were actually really, really nice about that. They actually refunded the foreign transaction fees, which no one ever does. So I think that you can, you have some leeway later if you do call and kind of try to talk to people. But honestly, just talk to your banks and ask them about this. Okay. That would be the biggest thing. So also just being aware of, like when you're paying for something and you're in a restaurant, they might say, hey, do you want to pay in local currency or in U.S. dollars or your currency, especially if it's by card, they might give you your currency or it might just be U.S. dollars. You always want to pay in the local currency because if the machine or the, the, the store is going to convert it for you, they're going to add 5%. And I've done the math. I've looked at the number they gave me in U.S. dollars and I've paid in the local currency. And I've gone back and looked at my statement for my card and they, it was literally a 5% difference. And that can really add up. And a lot of times that I found in certain countries, if you pay, especially in South America, if you pay with a foreign credit card, you pay, you don't have to pay the actual taxes for accommodation. Like in Buenos Aires and Argentina, they had a thing where foreign cards, foreigners weren't charged the, I forget the percentage. In Uruguay, you save about 20%, was it? Yeah, it was 20% 20 paying for anything with a credit card. It was like food and accommodation. If you paid with a foreign credit card, they waived the, the taxes. So that's been really beneficial. More countries, I've seen that. It's very, it's very common in South America. Um, but that is something to kind of be mindful of when you're there as well. And I think like just using public transit, picking accommodation that's convenient. Because taxis add up. I really don't like to take taxis unless I have to go to the airport or something. Because honestly, a taxi is more than a meal. Like in, here in, in, in Chiang Mai, a taxi to go anywhere in this town is more than a meal. And I just can't justify that. So I try to, like my current apartment is very logistically, it's a good place. And I plan that. So I think if you take a little more time to book your accommodation in a convenient place that's near a stop for public transit or something that's easy, or within walking distance of things, then I think that that's, that's a really helpful thing. So I, I know some people to add to that that are starting to use Google Maps or some or mm -hmm. Apple Maps, whatever you want to call it, and they look for the places they want to go in a city, like a coffee shop that they're looking mm -hmm. for, or, and then they star all of those places, and then they start looking for accommodation to, to help them mm -hmm. with those That's true. things. And I also look at, I'm also picky about the place, so if I'm trying to find one that's nice, I try to find the one with the best. I will say in Hong Kong, I picked a place that was really nice. They'd had like what I wanted in a place because all the other ones were tiny and cramped and it was further from the city, but it was right by bus stops and the buses are very inexpensive there. And so I could get to the, um, just any other part of the Island, wherever I was for literally like less than a dollar. And so for me, I'm going to have to take, even if I was staying in the central, I'd still have to take trains around. So for me, it was just, it was just easy to just get on the bus because it was so convenient. Yeah, I stayed at a place in Sofia, yeah. Bulgaria, mm -hmm. just because it was close to the bus stop mm -hmm. and the subway, mm -hmm. so that once I got from the airport mm -hmm. by subway, I could just easily walk anywhere I needed to go there. Fancy hotels I, are not often in convenient locations for public transit. They want you to take the taxis. That's never in my budget to stay at those, but that's definitely the biggest issue. Definitely, was there's some friends that were going on a trip, and they were staying somewhere super fancy, like the Westin or, or the W or something, and... You know, splitting it four ways was still pricey, and I thought about it. But when I, I was like, I'll just stay near you guys. But I looked at where the hotel was, and there was nothing near them. I ended up just not going on the trip because I was just like, the amount of money it's going to cost for me to even be hanging out with you, I could, you know, the flight, just the cost of the hotel alone would have been like what I would have spent the whole weekend there by myself. So it was just. 
Fancy hotels also made you pay for Wi-Fi for the longest time. Oh, yeah, and parking, and yeah, it's just, yeah. Now, it was... It was cheaper to stay in a hostel with free Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. And you also you breaks. often get free breakfast at hostels, and like I was in Medellin, Colombia, and my hostel was really cheap, and they had fresh papaya and yogurt every morning for breakfast, and it was delicious, this amazing spread, and it was free. And I really will pick a hostel or a place I'm staying or a guest house based on the breakfast. If the breakfast is bad, it will be noted in the reviews. So there's things like that. Another thing I would say is just like referrals so if you're traveling with a friend or by yourself if you refer other people like booking.com and like hotels.com and things there's well there's also loyalty programs where booking.com you can refer a friend and they if they spend over $50 on a booking then you get a $25 credit and your friend does and like we've done this between each other and referred other friends we've been traveling with to save money and then hotels.com if you do like to stay in hotels I believe every 10th night and their loyalty program is free and then there's a website called Ebates as well. And what Ebates is, is you, you, can, you go to Ebates and whatever website you want to shop on, if you're buying clothes, if you're booking travel, you can book booking.com things there. I mean, you'd be amazed at the stuff they have. You go and click on their link. And if you go and click on their link and shop and buy something, they will give you a percentage of that money back. And they will pay, put it directly to your PayPal. And I've been doing that for the year. And I think I've made about 60 or 70 US dollars just from clicking on their links and doing referrals. And so it's just a little way to save money. And this is even just online shopping. This is just stuff I'm going to buy anyways. And this is very similar to shopping through your credit card for points. But I find that Booking.com has a lot. I'm not Booking, pardon me. Ebates has more stores than my credit cards do. And so even when I was renewing my domain name for my photography website, I was able to go through GoDaddy's link on Ebates and get a percentage back for something I have to pay for every year. And renew, and so I think I made a like two dollars just from renewing my domain name. So it's just things like that, or whatever, or maybe it was something else I was renewing. But you know, it's just it's yeah, a high percentage. Yeah. Turned me on to Ebates earlier this year. I think I probably mm-hmm. saved about thirty-five to forty dollars yeah. just from things I had to book throughout the year. Mm-hmm. That's and true. It's just that's a, a meal. That's mm-hmm. five meals mm-hmm. depending where you are. And the reason I like Booking.com is they will match prices. So if you find a place, there's a place I just stayed where I found it cheaper elsewhere and I sent it to them. And after I got there and paid, I sent them the receipt and they just direct deposited the difference back in my account. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, and so I, in that way I'm getting the Ebates money as well. And then I'm getting that back. So it's like, it's like a win-win situation. Definitely. So. Well, thank you for these good tips. And I look forward to getting even more of them when I buy your book on Tuesday. So <laughs> <laughs> um, now my final question for you is, if someone is really wanting to finally get out there and take this trip that they've been thinking about or study abroad for the first time, but they're scared to do it, what advice would you have for them? You just have to go. The timing will never be 100% perfect in anything you ever do. I met this family that was a British family. They'd sold their house and they were traveling for a year with their two children who were like, I think, 16 and 13. And I interviewed them on my blog and I asked the mother the question and she's like, honestly, the timing will never be right. And I was like, I agree. And I thought that was fascinating that she felt the same. If you want to do something, you just have to do it. Because if you keep saying, you know, excuses and excuses, you're never going to do it. And, you know, no 80-year-old is ever going to be like, man, I regret that year that I, like, spent in Australia. Like, no one's ever going to regret that. You always regret the things that you don't do versus the things that you do do. So I just say go. I mean, plan as much as you can. Try to get the timing right as much as you can. But in the end, you just have to go. Great advice. Yeah. And it sounds so easy, but I know the excuses, <laughs> like you said, can just come up. So. Exactly. And people are going to, especially if you're American, people are probably going to tell you that you're crazy. Your family's probably going to think you're crazy. It's not safe. And exactly, which is, oh my, can I just say that I, I've been on the road all year long. I was in South America for four months. I'm in Asia for five months and I feel safer here than I do in America right now. And I, yeah, it's just. I actually agree with that because yeah. I've been walking around. I agree. Feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Last night I was walking home at like, what was it 1 a.m.? It was fine. No, I felt safe. I don't, I wouldn't do that in Texas. You know, it's like, I mean, in certain, I guess maybe downtown Austin if I wasn't going far, but for the and most part. also a difference between driving culture and walking mm-hmm. culture. Here we're used to walking around. It's just so safe here, you know. And it was a, it's a nice, safe area, and I was walking like 10 minutes, so it wasn't like, you know. Um, but in general, like, I, I definitely feel safer here than I do in America. And so, and that's, there's, I want to say something about that, too. There's this misconception that travel is so dangerous. And yes, certain places are more dangerous than others, and you might have issues with pickpocketing and things like that. But if you take normal precautions, you know, and don't keep your phone in your back pocket, and you're just mindful of, of things like that, then you can sort of negate any issues in the, when it comes to things like that. But the New York Times did a study, and they had a report that said the biggest cause of death for Americans abroad was car accidents. 
it wasn't, it's not terrorism, it's not bombings, it's not, you know, kidnappings and all these, these crazy things that um, our parents probably think up. But, um, so it is safer than you think. Yeah, I found that to be mm-hmm. true as well. Mm-hmm. Well, if people want to find you or follow you somewhere, where can we look for you? Well, you can find me on my travel blog, which is travellikeanna.com. It's the same on Twitter. For Instagram, it is my full name with photos. So it's Anna Mazurik, and that's M-A-Z as in zebra, U-R-E-K photo on Instagram. So those are the best places. And the book will be available on Amazon on December the 11th in both a paperback and an e-book format. And again, it's called Good With Money. Um, Thank you, Anna. I look forward to reading the book. Thank you for having me. And thank you for letting me film here in your apartment. (laughs) Anytime, anytime. (laughs) And keep traveling. Thank you. You too. I hope that you were writing all of that down, listeners, because Anna sure had a lot of things to teach us. And there's even more in her book that I really think you'll benefit from if you download it. So thank you for listening. And our travel quote this week is from Elizabeth Gilbert, who Anna mentions in her interview. And I think this is quite a funny one. Elizabeth says, I feel about travel the way a happy new mother feels about her impossible, colicky, restless newborn baby. I just don't care what it puts me through because I adore it. I can tell that Anna adores travel despite sometimes having to negotiate for the best price, not always getting the best deal at the beginning. She keeps going and she loves travel. And I hope you do too, listeners. Also remember what Anna says, just go, just go. That's another great, great quote for us to remember. By the way, I apologize for the sound in the background here. I am actually staying in a hostel in Kota Kinabalu, Malaysia, and I'm about to go on a trip to climb the highest mountain in Borneo, which is Mount Kota Kinabalu. And next week, stay tuned. I'd like to share my experiences that I'm starting tomorrow and tell you what it's like to climb this mountain and what it's like to be in Borneo, just a little bit about Borneo. So stay tuned. It's going to be a solo episode next week, but I hope that you find it interesting. Have a great week, listeners. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spent your time and money in this world. Living in this